Well, open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 1. It's kind of nice saying Nehemiah chapter 1, as, you know, in a different place. We, I said Acts for so long. This morning we are continuing our brand new study through the book of Nehemiah. We're going to be looking at part 2 of an intro to Nehemiah. Our starting text is going to be Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, the same three verses we started with last week. And so let's read those verses as we uh, jump into our time here. Nehemiah chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, it came to pass in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan the citadel, that Hanani... One of my brethren came with men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire." In order to begin helping us understand what Nehemiah was dealing with here in these verses, that the news of the Jewish people escaping and surviving captivity and Jerusalem's walls being broken down and its gates being burned with fire, and to begin providing some background and context for the book of Nehemiah, last week we went back much further in time probably 1,500 years at least, to, to help provide some of the historical background. And so in part one last week, we, we looked at the promise of the Jewish homeland that God made to Abraham way, way back in the day and traced that promise to them getting the land to what eventually led to them being con- uh, conquered and exiled from the land. And then finally, we saw how God made good on his promise to, to bring them back to the land after being in captivity for 70 years by stirring King Cyrus to to make a decree that the Jews could return to Jerusalem and actually commanding them that they were to rebuild the Jewish temple that had been destroyed, Solomon's temple. But now in part two today, to continue helping provide some needed background and context for the book of Nehemiah, I want us to pick up where we left off last week and focus today on the incomplete return of the Jewish people from exile and the the work that God did in the first two of three returns of the people to Jerusalem, leading us toward what we're going to find in the book of Nehemiah. Because clearly from the report that Nehemiah uh, received about 92 years after King Cyrus's decree, uh, you know, His decree didn't bring about a complete restoration of the Jewish people and the Jewish homeland, and things still were not good. We would think with King Cyrus' decree, well, everything's great now. You guys went back. Obviously, you rebuilt the temple because that's what King Cyrus commanded you by the word of God, but there's so much that happened in that 92-year span that Nehemiah was still heartbroken over. That when we read in verse 4 that he, he 
sat down and he wept and he mourned for many days. We got to know like what was going on that created this great brokenness and burden in the heart of this man, Nehemiah, that we're going to be looking at. So with that in mind, let's start with what we ended our study with last week, and that's King Cyrus's decree. But instead of reading the account in 2 Chronicles, uh, I believe, chapter 26 or 36, one of those two, probably 36. One of you might correct me later, but that's okay. Uh, we're going to read Ezra's account of that same thing. So Ezra chapter 1, we'll put it on the screen for you, but if you turn back just one book, you'll, you'll catch it as well. Ezra chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me. And he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the free will offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Then the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, with all whose spirits God had moved, arose to go up and build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. And in verse 6, and all those who were around them encouraged them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock and with precious things, besides all that was willingly offered. King Cyrus also brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem and put in the temple of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, brought them out by the hand of Mithridath, the treasurer, and counted them out to Sheshbazar, which is uh, one of the names that we find, and we're going to find, but it's actually, this is, this, this is Zerubbabel, this is another name Zerubbabel had in that day, Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. This is the number of them, verse 9. 30 gold platters, 1,000 silver platters, 29 knives, 30 gold basins, 410 silver basins of a similar kind, and 1,000 other articles. All the articles of gold and silver were 5,400 all these Sheshbazar, I can't even say the word, Sheshbazar, took with the captives who were brought from Babylon to Jerusalem. This decree of King Cyrus, which we referenced last week when ending our study, happened in 536 BC. This was 70 years after the final conquering of Jerusalem by the Babylonians and where the, the last group of Jews were exiled from their homeland to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. And this decree, as we saw a little bit last week, is an amazing fulfillment of prophecy, both the prophecy regarding Cyrus by Isaiah, which was given over 150 years before Cyrus was even born, but also the prophecy of Jeremiah, that after 70 years of captivity, God would bring his people back. And it could only be a result of the hand 
of God at work that this Gentile pagan king Cyrus, in the first year after conquering the Babylonians, makes this decree and encourages the Jewish people to go back to Jerusalem and even helps provide what was necessary for the Jews to rebuild their temple in Jerusalem. But as we find in Ezra chapter 2, not all the Jews returned to their homeland. The Jewish people had created new lives in Babylon during those 70 years of exile. They had gotten comfortable, and only 50,000 of the Jewish people initially returned when Zerubbabel, also known as Sheshbazar, led that first return. And this is 50,000 out of about two to three million Jews that were estimated to be living in different areas of the Persian Empire at that time. I, I think somewhere someone had said something like, this is like 2%. 2% of the Jewish people went back when Cyrus said, you can go back home. You can go back home and I'm going to give you everything that you need to rebuild your temple. I'm going to provide it all. Here's all the stuff that, that Nebuchadnezzar had taken and put in the temple of his God. You can have it all back. And, and I'll fund the whole thing. And actually, the people that stay behind, they're going to give you stuff. They're going to help provide for what's needed. All of you go. And they're like, 2% of them are like, cool. Let's go back. But some did return. Again, about 50,000 did. And those who stayed behind supported and encouraged those who decided to take the opportunity to return. And the command was given to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And the first thing that we find in the book of Ezra that the first group of exiles did when returning to Jerusalem was that they built an altar to the Lord so that sacrifices could be made once again. And, and this is so significant but because 70 years the worship life of the people of Israel was disrupted. 70 years of not having that place to come to and, and draw near to the presence of the Lord, dwelling in the most holy place in the temple. 70 years of, of being able to confess their sins through their sacrifices and, and bring their thanksgiving offerings to the Lord. 70 years of all of that being gone. You know, I think about the, the, the time of the last couple years and how it felt for so many of us when not being able to be in person together to then being able to gather once again. How good that felt, how weird it was when that in-person worship life for us as a church was disrupted. But how about 70 stinking years like we had 15 weeks of being online. We were still meeting virtually, but 70 years. Some of us are like, it felt like 70 years. <laughs> this pandemic's felt like 70 years. I know it's only been a couple of years, but 70 years. And, and the first thing they do is we gotta worship the Lord. We gotta build this altar. We gotta make some sacrifices. I just love that example here. The first thing they do is not like, what can I do for me? It's, Lord, we just really need you. And after building the altar, not the temple, just the altar first, 
a lot easier to set up the altar than it was to rebuild the temple. The next step was to prepare for the rebuilding of the house of the Lord, the temple. And so that's what they did. We're going to read Ezra chapter 3, verses 10 through 13, where we find this. It says in Ezra 3, starting in verse 10, When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord, according to the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His mercy endures forever toward Israel. Then all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord. Man, I think there's so much we can learn from the worship life of the Israelites. We're so subdued in our worship oftentimes. We're just quiet and we now say, Lord, and then and I don't want anyone else to hear me when I'm singing. And they shouted. They shouted their praise. Got symbols like Energizer Bunny Levites over here. Bam, 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 bam. He's good. He's good. His mercy endures forever toward Israel. Is he not still good today? Is his mercy still not endure towards us? Man, we have so much to shout and to praise for. And we, I think, you know, anytime Bob Hart's here, I'm like, Bob, I told him last week, I'm like, can you just sit in like the middle of the room so that like both sides of the room can hear him amening? And, uh, you know, it's like, we could use a little Pentecostalism, not like in a weird way, but a little bit more excitement and like, Yes, God's good. Anyways, amen. People shouted with a great shout and they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Verse 12, but many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's houses, old men, this isn't a diss of the old men, but old men who had seen the first temple wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard afar off. The foundation of the temple was finally laid. The people sang responsively. I love that. They sang responsively. There was a response of their hearts to the the work that God was doing. They shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the temple was finally laid. But we're told that those who were older who had seen the first temple, they were a part of that that last exile, that last group that was taken from their homeland. They wept with a loud voice. There was both joy and sorrow after the foundation of the temple was laid. And just a quick aside from that or a quick note about that, you know, just that for us to take note that, that even for the people of Israel, so true for us that comparison is always a robber of joy. The people that never saw the, the first temple, they had nothing to, there's nothing for them to reference. They were just pumped. What are they pumped about? There's a foundation. There's not walls. There's nothing there. It's literally, if you come to something, 
now this isn't, I know there's some people, there's a foundation about to happen and it's like that. There's exciting things about a foundation when you've been waiting for a long time. But if it's not your thing, if you just drive past a, 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 a development and you're seeing them grade the land and, and putting concrete down, you're like, well, okay. I'll come back when there's actually a thing there to look at, right? But they just were excited. They're pumped that there's a foundation. It's there. This is exciting. But the people who remembered what the glory of Solomon's temple, how amazing it was, all they could do was weep. And just how, again, to, to be cautioned to not fall into that area of comparison because how much it can just steal the joy of the Lord. Instead of us being able to rejoice of what God's doing, that we could just be robbed of that and, and find ourselves even in mourning over what we once had over the thing that God used to be doing. But after the foundation was laid, the adversaries of Judah quickly came, pretending first to want to help them build. We find this as we make our way through the book of Ezra. Troubled them in their building, tried to discourage them, hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose so the building would never happen, and the adversaries of Judah succeeded for a time. Because of enemy threats and manipulation and scare tactics and scheming and discouragement and even apathy in the hearts of the people of Israel, for almost 16 years, no work took place on the temple. All they had was the foundation. Well, there's that foundation. 16 years. But I love it that God didn't leave things there in that halted and stunted place for his people forever. The work had halted, but almost 16 years later, God raised up and used two prophets, the prophet Haggai and Zechariah, to stir his people to rise up and begin building the house of God again. Why? Because the people just, their focus and their priorities shifted instead of Getting back to building the house of God, they were just building their own houses. We've got our, we're just, we're doing our thing. We're taking care of us. And God's like, quit doing that. Focus on my house. Like you were supposed to build my house. <laughs> Not quit doing that. Like, hey, you can't have a place to live, but <laughs> no. And so in the book of Haggai, we find God giving the prophet Haggai messages for Zerubbabel who was the governor of Judah, and Joshua, who was the high priest, and all the remnant of the people, first rebuking them and then encouraging and stirring the people to go back to the work of God's house to finish the building. And, and we find this in Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. It says, In the seventh month, on the 21st of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord. And be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work. 
for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. And I love verse 5, according to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. God's reminder to those who struggled with comparison or, or who were feeling discouraged or who were frustrated by, frustrated by the state of how things were or maybe who had just become complacent or apathetic because the work of building the temple had stopped in verses 4 and 5 of that passage was to be strong and work for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. According to the work I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. And that was a needed word for the Israelites at that moment in time. But it's a needed reminder for us today even when we consider what we've been called to as Jesus' church. He is with us. That the promise that Jesus gave at the end of his commission in Matthew 28, I'm with you always. He has strength for us to get back to the work of his house and the work of his kingdom and the work of proclaiming his gospel. He hasn't gone back on his word. He will keep his word. His spirit remains among us. We don't need to fear and as the church of Jesus today, we've been called to be steadfast, to be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor is not in vain in the Lord, as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. Now is not the time for us to be sitting on the sidelines. It's the time to abound, to increase in the work of of the Lord, knowing that our labor is never empty, it's never useless in the Lord. I'm sure I've said something about this even recently, but man, we start to feel like it's useless when we don't see anything come from it. When we've been working and we don't see any fruit outwardly. Paul says, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Because there's an abundance of work to be done. The harvest is great. The laborers are few. What Jesus shared with his disciples in the gospel, saying that very thing, we're not in a state now where we're going, no, the harvest really isn't as great as it used to be. It's, you know, I think we've reached pretty much everybody. And man, what an abundance of laborers we have. No, we're like, Lord, <laughs> the harvest is so great. There's so many people that need to be reached with your gospel. The laborers are still few. Lord, send laborers into the harvest. We don't come away with a different perception than Jesus had. We're like, yep, Jesus, you're right. Almost 2,000 years later, it's still accurate. It's still an accurate thing to be praying. We still need to be praying to the Lord of the harvest. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. A work that we know is partly here. It's partly with His people. It's, it's, it's being a crucial member of the body of Christ. But then there's that outflow of that where we're reaching out to those, those that don't know the Lord with His gospel. 
these people in Nehemiah's day, or sorry, in, in Ezra's day, actually, as he's writing in hindsight about these things that happened, they needed this word from God. So Rubbable and Joshua and all the people, they needed this encouragement from the Lord. And four months after that message that God spoke through the prophet Haggai, God gave greater clarity to how the work of building the temple would happen in Zechariah chapter 4, that it would not be by might nor by power, but that it would happen by the Spirit of the Lord. And God gave Zerubbabel there confidence that he would get to see that temple finished, that he would do it with shouts of grace, grace to it. And even there cautioned Zerubbabel in that chapter to not despise the day of small things. You know, for us today, how are we going to see God accomplish the things that he said and the things that he's called us to partner with him to see happen in his church and in this world today for his kingdom and glory? Well, it's got to be a work of the Spirit of God. I think many of us could look around and we feel like Zerubbabel, the thing is mountainous. Lord, how are we going to get, how is this going to happen? How are we going to reach people? How are we going to see things happen in our culture? How are we going to see enemy territory taken back? It's, it's not by might. It's not by human power. It's not by human thinking even. It's not by our, our own logic and ingenuity. It's going to be by the Spirit of God that those things happen. Which means we need to be relying upon the Spirit of God. And if anything good happens, if anything happens that, that's clearly a work of God, we need to be shouting grace, grace to it as well. And not despising the day of small things. You know, it's so easy to look down on the day of small things. But we have to remember, as another pastor shared with me, as he was talking about the, the example of the oak tree and the seed that it grows from, that there's so much potential in small things. We could despise the seed of an oak tree, a little thing, but you plant it in the ground, you give it the right kind, kind of soil and, and take care of it and you give it time, that thing's going to grow to be this immense, amazing, strong tree. But it's so easy to despise, to look down upon the small times in life, the small things that God's doing, the small things he might even be doing in our church, and yet to know that those small things matter greatly to our God. The small acts of faithfulness even, how much God values them. The, the encouragement of the Lord through the prophets Haggai and Zechariah here in this account got the Jewish people working on the temple again after it had been stopped for almost 16 years. And even though opposition resurfaced again, that opposition actually ended up leading 
to King Darius, who we know about and hear from Daniel's writings, sent a letter, issued a decree to those who opposed the Jews, telling them that the temple was to be rebuilt, that the expenses were to be paid from the king's treasury, that those in opposition to the Jews were to leave the Jews and their work alone, and that anyone who tried to oppose the king's decree would be hanged. We see this in Ezra chapter 6. But we read this at Ezra 6 verses 13 through 18 after that decree was made. It says in Ezra 6 13, Then Tatanai, governor of the region beyond the river, Shethar Bosnai, and their companions diligently did according to what King Darius had sent. So the elders of the Jews built, and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. And they built and finished it according to the commandment of the God of Israel and according to the command of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Now the temple was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, which is in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. Then the children of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the descendants of the captivity celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. And they offered sacrifices at the dedication of this house of God, 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. They assigned the priests to their divisions and the Levites to their divisions over the service of God in Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses." You know, when we're reading through some of these things and we see some of these months and timestamps, like they might not jump out to us in the moment, but these things were crucial uh, historical pieces that help us and and verify the the historicity of the Bible, that these things were accurate, they, they actually happened, they happened at specific times in a king's reign, and it helps us to know the timeline of things as well, that the temple was finally completed in about 516 B.C. This was 20 years after the exiles first arrived in Jerusalem. 20 years. But, but this leads us to the next big moment in situation that happened historically for the Jewish people. About 38 years after the temple in Jerusalem was completed, in 478 B.C., a Jewish woman named Esther, her Jewish name being Hadassah, became queen of the Persian Empire. Although her husband, King Ahasuerus, didn't know she was a Jew initially. And this is where we find the account of the book of Esther taking place with the Jews throughout the Medo-Persian Empire almost being exterminated. And yet there in the account of Esther, we see that God truly did have Esther in the position that she was for such a time as this, as her uncle Mordecai had shared with her to help protect and preserve the Jewish people. And God used her and used her uncle Mordecai to reverse the plans of an evil man named Haman to where instead of Esther's uncle Mordecai being hung to death, which was Haman's plan, and the Jewish people being exterminated, which was Haman's plan, Haman was hung to death on the same gallows he had prepared for Haman, or sorry, for Mordecai, And the Jewish people were allowed to defend themselves and defeat those who wanted to destroy them. This is actually where the day of Purim 
came about because of this whole uh, situation with Haman. So time and again, we, we see God preserving and delivering his people, the Jews. And the book of Esther is a great example of God doing that very thing. And, and the book of Esther would fit in between the, the building of the temple and, and Ezra's uh, return to Jerusalem. And so 21 years after Ezra, 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 21 years after Esther was made queen, so this is now about 79 years after the first exiles returned, we find a second group of exiles returning to Jerusalem led by a priest named Ezra in about 457 BC with some more of the children of Israel. How can I have some more when I haven't had any yet, right? Amen. <laughs> we find this, though, in Ezra chapter 7. If you've ever read the book of Ezra, you got to know that the first half, really, the, the almost two-thirds of the book of Ezra, Ezra is actually just giving a historical account. These were not first-hand experiences for Ezra. He's writing about what happened. And then in chapter 7, this is where, now where Ezra actually, he starts writing from, from his own uh, present experience. And so Ezra chapter 7, starting in verse 1, it says, Now after these things, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra the son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Ahitub, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Marioth, the son of Zerahiah, the son of Uzi. I used to have a dog named Uzi. The son of Buki. The son of Abishua, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. So he's tracing his lineage back to the chief priest of Israel, Aaron. This Ezra came up from Babylon, and he was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. The king granted him all his requests according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. Some of the children of Israel, the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the Nethanim came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. On the first day of the first month, he began his journey from Babylon. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. So it was a four-month journey. According to, the hand, uh, sorry, according to the good hand of his God upon him, for Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. And so for the majority of the rest of that chapter, we see the decree of King Artaxerxes who invited more of the people of Israel and their priests and the Levites at that time to go to Jerusalem with Ezra, giving Ezra authority to set magistrates and judges over the people and that he was to teach the people the laws of God, but what Ezra found all these years later, once he was in Jerusalem, was that many of the people, including the priests, and many of the priests and the Levites, had intermarried with the pagan people of the land. And this was a, a recipe for the Jews to head back into idolatry all over again, as they had so many times in the past, and, and experienced the judgment of God because of it. And this created a great brokenness in Ezra to where he actually tore his robe, ripped out some of his hair on his head and his beard, and, and cried out to the Lord and confessed the sins of the people 
to the Lord. And as he was praying and confessing and weeping and, and bowing down before the house of God, we're told in the book of Ezra, a large assembly of people gathered to him from Israel and wept bitterly, admitted their guilt, wanted to make a covenant with the Lord that they would separate themselves from the sinful relationships they had gotten themselves into. And so we find God using Ezra at that point in time to help lead the people to repent and realign their lives in line with what God was wanting so that they would be a holy, set-apart people unto the Lord again. And we're going to see Ezra the priest again, actually, in the book of Nehemiah as he's going to teach the people the law of God. But, but though the temple had been rebuilt, as we considered, with God using Zerubbabel, Though God intervened in preserving his people from extermination as we consider with God using Esther and Mordecai. And though some reforms had happened to draw the hearts of the people back to the Lord as we just considered with God using Ezra the priest. Things in Jerusalem and with the Jewish people about 13 years later as we'll see and we have already seen in the beginning of the book of Nehemiah. Those things were still not good. There was still so much work to be done when it came to the need for renewal and rebuilding a work that God clearly wanted to bring about. You know, an altar was built. The temple was rebuilt. Some reforms even took place. But over the course of the Jewish people being back in Jerusalem for 92 years, the walls and the gates of Jerusalem lay in ruin that entire time. The people were vulnerable. The, 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 their enemies had easy access. Yes, the worship life of the people had been restored with the temple being rebuilt. But the people were in great distress and kept in a state of dishonor as their city still bore the marks of the judgment and destruction of the past. you imagine that? Here's it. Our temple is there. But anyone walking by the city is like, wow, this place is a dump. The walls are all broken down. All the gates are burned with fire. Like, what is going on around here? It just still looks like destruction. From, from an outside perspective, there's nothing there's nothing that would show, wow, the God of Israel is among these people. And even for the people living in the city, it's like, how, how free and how at peace do you feel to go and worship at the temple and, and to make your sacrifices when you're worried that enemies can come in at any time because there's no walls and there's no gates. There's, not, there's no real protection here. To know that, yes, the worship life of the people was restored. There's some connection with the God of Israel once again. But really, spiritually, physically, and as a community, these people were vulnerable. Things were not healthy. There was all kinds of openings and, and families were were having, you know, were, were needing for there to be some sort of protection. Someone needed to stand in the gap. And, you know, when we look back even at the account of Ezra, and Ezra's talking about the opposition that came when the 
first exiles were starting to rebuild the temple, one of the indictments that they made when they were writing to the king at that time to get them to stop was that they were also rebuilding the walls. So way back, almost 90 years before Nehemiah's time, there was this effort as they were starting to rebuild the temple. There was an effort to get the walls going. And, and the only thing that ended up happening was, hey, we got our temple. Well, here we got our temple, God. But we're a people with broken down walls. They're, they're a people of, of great distress and dishonor. And I, and I love it that here as we've considered even these things this morning, how God was working in this time of return. That these things, these amazing things, they, they were, they were amazing things. Man, the temple was destroyed and it, it, it was rebuilt. The people had started to intermarry at the people, which we know even from Solomon. King Solomon, why his heart drifted away from the Lord was because he started to marry all of these pagan wives and he started to, his heart gravitated toward all of their pagan gods. To know that God used Ezra to help bring the, the people back. To know that God intervened in the life of the Jews through Esther. What we see is God using individual people to do something amazing. It wasn't the whole nation rising up. We're going to protect ourselves. It wasn't the whole nation rising up saying, we're going to get back there. Remember, it was like 2% of the people went back. It just started with one. Started with Zerubbabel and Joshua, uh, Joshua the high priest. It started with Esther and Mordecai. And then it started with Ezra. And, and as we're going to see from our study of Nehemiah, it just started with a guy who had a burden for what was happening in his homeland, for, the, for his people. And to know that today as we consider the things that are going on, and maybe what's needed is for the worship life of people to be restored. Or maybe it's the need for preservation and protection. Or maybe it's the need for God to realign people who have gotten off and there's compromise and complacency and apathy that's happened. It, we could look at all that and go, man, it's too big. I don't know how any of that's going to all change. I don't know how God's going to bring these things about to know that it always just starts with the person. Just a person who stirred by the Spirit of God. Started with King Cyrus. God stirred the Spirit of Cyrus. And to know what God can do when he has the heart of an individual, that he could steer and empower and use, and, and not just with that person, but what God would do through those people to influence a whole nation, to, or to, to influence a whole group of people. That God can do those same things today. To not be discouraged by all the brokenness that we see around us. Yes, we can weep over the brokenness. Yes, we can cry out to God about the brokenness but to know that God is able to do something about the brokenness that exists all around us. 
And he just wants to start with you and me. And all of this, all we've considered this morning, it's not just history. These are important things to know of of how we're going to approach the book of Nehemiah, but these are important things for our lives individually. To see that these same sorts of things, these same sorts of situations exist. The the rise of anti-Semitism, even in our day. The same, there's, there's Hamans in our world who want to see the Jews exterminated. We saw it with, with Hitler. That wasn't even that many years ago, historically. That God is still protecting and preserving the Jewish nation. That God's still wanting to raise up people in his church to be about the work of rebuilding and renewal. And that we would be a people who would go, God, let that be us. Let, God, let that be me. And in those areas where, you know what, there's brokenness that exists in our lives. Maybe there's apathy or compromise, and we've let some things be in rubble. And God's going, it doesn't have to be that way. (laughs) Cool, you have a relationship with me. Your worship life has been restored in that sort of sense, but there's still broken down walls. You're you're still vulnerable to the enemy. You've still got a, a vulnerable spiritual state. There's still unhealthiness in your life that God wants to do something about, that God's, even this morning, maybe for some of us saying, I want to do something there. Now the worship team come back up. Guys, God wants to do something by His Spirit and by His grace. Again, the, the things that we desire to see, maybe, and maybe it's not even us looking out and going, oh, how is this all going to, how are we going to see this change in our society and culturally and what's happening around us and in this situation over here with this person and, and at my work and, and, and here, but maybe it's just even in our lives. We're going, I don't know how this thing's going to change in me. I don't know how the thing that I'm facing is going is to be resolved, but to know this morning that it's not going to happen by might. It's not going to happen by power, but it's going to be by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God. To know that God has covenanted with us as His covenant people this morning who have, who have been brought into a new covenant of grace because of the blood of Jesus Christ. To know that we can shout grace Grace to the things that God does. The mountains that we're facing, the things that seem insurmountable, that God's able, even as he said to Zechariah in Zechariah 4, he's able to make those mountains become a plain. I can make that all flat. I can deal with the thing. The thing that you don't know how is going to work out, I can do it. And that even today for us, that we wouldn't despise those days of small things, but we would see how great of value those small things are and approach those things with the right perspective. Let's pray. God, we're so thankful for your word. Lord, so thankful for how you've worked throughout human history. Lord, as we even considered last week in the nation of Israel, God, how we've considered this morning your work, Lord, even as your people 
grew discouraged because of opposition halted in things that you called them to. That God, in your grace, you didn't leave it in that halted, stunted state, but Lord, you brought encouragement. You rallied your people so that they rebuilt the temple. God, even providing everything that was necessary for that to happen. That God, in Esther's day, Lord, that you put this Jewish woman (laughs) as a queen of the the king of basically the known world at that time. For such time as that. Lord, and to know that for us, that Jesus, you provided deliverance for us by your blood. But Lord, for some of us, God, that you've put us in the position that you have and you've placed us around the people that you have for such a time as this. Lord, help us to not miss those opportunities. And God, maybe in places, Lord, where our heart is drifted, that God, we, are, we would, even this morning, realign ourselves. Reorient, Lord, our lives under your lordship and according to your word. That God, we'd be people of the word. And Lord God, as you have throughout human history looked for individuals that you might use for your kingdom and your glory and your purposes. The Lord, even today, the Lord, you're wanting to do something about the brokenness, Lord, that exists in our world, Lord, the broken state of people's spiritual lives, Lord, that separation that exists because of their sin. And Lord, we are the ones individually that you're calling to stand in the gap in prayer and to be those who who pour into others, who seek to bring your gospel, to bring the hope of Jesus to them. But Lord, even in the work of your church, that God, those things that maybe have been kind of left in a state of haltedness, Lord, or uh, a stuntedness, Lord, God, that, that even today you're saying, get back. Get back to the work of my house. Lord God, would you lead us by your spirit and in your grace. Lord, we're in need of you. But God, we're thankful that we have you. Your spirit remains among us. Lord, so what do we have to fear? God, would you overcome, Lord, the discouragement or the apathy or whatever it is that might have been keeping us, Lord, in a place of just pause even. That, God, you'd revive us once again. That we would abound in the work of the Lord being steadfast and immovable. Lord, knowing that our labor is not in vain in you. So God, use us in these days.
And Lord, for any who have joined us this morning, whether that's here in person, maybe online, maybe it's someone later down the road who listens to this message. Maybe even it's some of the inmates who get these DVDs of the service to to watch. Lord, that God, by your spirit, you'd be opening blind eyes and deaf ears. You'd be softening hard hearts. But Lord, any who don't have a personal saving relationship with you, Lord Jesus, that they would see their need for you. Lord, see their sinfulness, see the brokenness, and know that, Jesus, you're able to do something about the brokenness, that you want to do something about that broken-down spiritual state of people. That, Jesus, you want to save, that you want to forgive, that you want to bring about a newness in people's lives, Lord, that you want to give the promise of heaven That even now, that any that don't know you personally, that they would say, Jesus, I'm a sinner, and I need your salvation. Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross for me, and that you rose again. That, Jesus, you have the power over death and sin and Satan. Jesus, would you make me a new creation? Would you cause all the old things to pass away? That everything would become new for me. Father, would you seal me with your Holy Spirit? And would you give me the hope and promise of eternal life with you? I just encourage you, if you've done that today, that the Bible says you will be saved. You open your heart to Jesus. You surrender your life to Jesus. You really mean this in your heart. Jesus will save you. And Lord, as people who have experienced the salvation, the grace, the power of Jesus, the goodness of Jesus, the mercy of Jesus, Lord, would we sing responsively? Would we shout for joy, Lord, because of what you've done and because of who you are? And Lord, we thank you. Lord, we love you. Pray these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, just a reminder, we do have communion over here to my right. People would be, people are available to pray with you. would love to pray for you in the corner of the room over there. Let's just keep pressing into the Lord.